At about 200 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes IV took control of Judea, otherwise known as Israel. And at first, at first he seemed to be a benevolent ruler, being kind to the Jewish people, but eventually he became ruthless toward them. He forced them to break their own law, the law of Moses, by sacrificing pigs and eating pork. And his sort of claim to fame is that he went into the temple uh, one time and, and erected an altar to Zeus, the god Zeus, and then sacrificed a pig there. Then at about 166 B.C., uh, another man, a Jewish man, a Jewish priest named Judas Maccabee, or Judas Maccabeus, led a revolt. It's known as the Maccabean Revolt. Led a revolt against uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and defeated him. And then Judas Maccabee went into Jerusalem, went into the temple, where he rededicated the temple, cleansed it, then offered right sacrifices on the altar, according to Jewish law. And then he lit the menorah candles, which stayed lit for eight days straight, even though there was only enough oil for one day. And that miracle then became the yearly celebrated festival of Hanukkah. <clears throat> then in celebration of their deliverance, in celebration of the rededication of the temple and the miracle of Hanukkah, we read this in the book of 2 Maccabees, chapter 10. Therefore, carrying ivy-wreathed wands and beautiful branches and also fronds of palm, they offered hymns of thanksgiving to him who had given success to the purifying of his own holy place. Sound familiar? Based on what we just read from Mark 11, it's not difficult to imagine the excitement on the part of some, at least, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem with people waving branches, palm branches. There's an historical memory at work here that understands Jesus is riding into Jerusalem to claim His throne, His rightful throne. Not unlike the heroic acts of Judas Maccabee 200 years prior. But there is more going on in this passage than we might catch at first. Certainly there's more going on in this passage than the disciples of Jesus or the crowds around them would have been aware of, would have understood at the time. And this takes us to our good news, which we celebrate and respond to this morning, is simply this. Jesus may not always be the king we want, but he is always the king we need. Jesus may not always be the king we want, but he is always the king we need. A few years ago, when our children were younger, we would sometimes, Kim and I would sometimes find that uh, they needed uh, extra prayer from us. Like all families, we have had our, our challenges with raising teenagers, and like all churches and pastors, this congregation and the one I was in previously have both had their challenges. And I remember from time to time bargaining with God. I would say, God, I have two major areas of my life. I have my family, and I have my church. What I need is for one of these two areas. You pick. It doesn't matter. One of these two areas to be well-behaved, <laughs> to be well-adjusted and prosperous, my family or my church. It doesn't matter. You pick. Because I figured if just one of these two areas was going well, I would have the energy and the strength to deal with the other one. Guess what happened when I bargained with God? nothing not a thing I guess it really didn't work that way what I discovered 
in times like that, what I'm still discovering, to be honest, on different levels all the time, is that Jesus may not always be the king I want, but he is always the king I need. There were things I wanted in my prayers, good things, but there were things I needed even more. I've been taught, as likely some of you, maybe many of you have been taught, that if we just pray for whatever it is we want, if we believe that we will receive it, it will be ours. But now I know that it's more complex than that. Oh, I know there are places I could point to, you could point to in Scripture that seem to say exactly that, but I have come to understand there's more going on in those passages than it might initially, we might initially be led to believe. There's, there's actually one of those places a bit later in Mark chapter 11, and we're going to touch on it a bit this morning. How many of us can name times in our lives, maybe we're in the middle of a time like this even now, how many of us can name times, name times where we know exactly what we want and we pray for it faithfully? We know in our hearts that what we want is a good thing. We know in our hearts that we have managed to have all the faith we should need in order for this thing to happen, and yet it doesn't happen. Maybe some of us have even bargained with God as I did, and when our prayers go unanswered, it can seem that Jesus is simply not being the king we most want, the king we most believed he was supposed to be. He's not answering our prayers. He's not doing what he promised. When I read through the, this passage for this morning, as I have for many years, the number of times I've read Mark 11 or preached on Mark 11 or taught on Mark 11, all the times, that I just felt on a new level I noticed something this time through. I was struck by what most of the crowds surrounding Jesus knew they wanted and knew they hoped for in a Messiah, and yet it just wasn't to be. What must that have felt like? God had something else in mind because Jesus was not the king they wanted, but he was most certainly the king they needed, even if they didn't realize it. So Mark 11 is a traditional Palm Sunday passage. This is not Palm Sunday. This is the first Sunday in the season of Lent. We will read it again when we get to Palm Sunday in a few weeks. But I don't like to take things out of order if I don't have to. And so I thought, here we are. Let's see if we can walk through this last week as we understand it of Jesus' life throughout the season of Lent. And so today we talk about Palm Sunday. And the image that, that most of us, I think, have in our heads is of a huge crowd of people all looking at Jesus and waving their palm branches before him and, and, and worshiping him and welcoming him into, the, into Jerusalem in fact, we sometimes refer to this as the triumphal entry, but that's likely only partly correct. Something else is going on here. When Jesus and his disciples were traveling into Jerusalem, they were doing so at the, at the same time as a throng of other faithful Jewish people on pilgrimage to the city for the festival of Passover. It's difficult to know how many people were coming into the city, but it was no doubt a lot. And then Jesus also had this smaller crowd of people around him, of course, people who probably had pinned their hopes on Jesus. But by and large, the overwhelming majority of those heading into the city that day were likely not celebrating Jesus. They were celebrating the Passover. This is what you did. It wasn't all about Jesus. He was certainly in the midst of it. There was certainly something going on there. But everybody wasn't aware of that. And as the people were coming up to the city, they would have been traveling the road from Jericho. Now, Jericho was a city which is 800 feet below sea level. It sits in the lowest region of the world, between 700, uh, 700 and, and, thir and uh, 1,388 feet below sea level, that region is. By contrast, the city of Jerusalem, the city set on a hill, is 3,000 feet above sea level. 
And so there was a very real sense of expectation as these pilgrims traveled the road to Jerusalem uphill. (laughs) And all along the road, the conditions were desert-like. This is a hot off the presses. The Cogswells and the Kincannons just returned from a couple weeks in the Holy Land. This is a picture of the road to Jericho, coming from Jericho toward Jerusalem. You can see it's very desert-like. It's very dry. But as they came up the hill toward Jerusalem, they would be suddenly met with lush vegetation as they neared the Mount of Olives. This is a picture of the Mount of Olives looking toward Jerusalem. Things would change. The expectation would grow. And as they neared the city, as they came upon the scene, they would sing and shout psalms of ascent. Psalms of ascent. So named because they were sung as pilgrims ascended the hill up to Jerusalem in the temple. And one of those psalms of ascent they would have sung or shouted was Psalm 118, from which the people actually quote and shout in Mark 11, verse 9, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. This was a psalm that any faithful Jewish person traveling on pilgrimage to Jerusalem during Passover or other festivals would have known and shouted and sung. They would have heard it shouted and understood it meant, well, we're going up to the city, we're going up to worship God. At the same time, I think people who were nearest to Jesus physically, who had been around him, likely heard and shouted these words with a different meaning. To them, these words perhaps clearly applied to Jesus. They may have even seen in Jesus images of Judas Maccabee riding in to conquer his oppressors and cleanse the temple. There was a sense among some of them, at least, that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. They even added a phrase that is not in Psalm 118. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That's a very messianic phrase. Hosanna in the highest, in verse 10. Whether or not the larger crowd had any clue about Jesus, when it came to their expectations of the Messiah and the kind of king they wanted, they would have all been in agreement. Whoever this Messiah was, he would rule and reign in a political, geographic, earthly kingdom, and he would subdue the enemies of the people of God, and in this case, the occupying Roman army. Just as Judas Maccabee had done to Antiochus Epiphanes nearly 200 years ago. But Jesus isn't going to give them the king they want. He's going to give them the king they most need. Jesus clearly drew on their expectations, however, when he rode in on a colt. In the prophet Zechariah, the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, the prophet declares the word of the Lord concerning the coming of the Messiah. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is making a statement. This is performance art. It's the way the prophets of old would sometimes make their pronouncement. They would combine their powerful words of prophecy with some kind of symbolic prophetic action that would sort of drive the point home and sear the image and the word into their minds, into their hearts. And Jesus was clearly stating that He was the King, the Messiah. He rode in on a colt. And He was fully aware of all of their expectations and wants, but He would not give them the king they wanted. He would give them instead the king they most needed. Then at the end of our passage, our reading this morning, Jesus does something interesting. In verse 11 we read, 
Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus scouted the place out. He's come into Jerusalem. He goes into the temple. He scouts it out. He looks at what's going on. He does a little bit of reconnaissance. Then he heads back out of the city, out of the city to the village of Bethany to join his disciples about two miles away. The next day he will come in and he will do a couple of more of those prophetic actions we talked about. He will curse a fig tree. The fig tree is a symbol of the people of Israel. And he will cleanse or judge the temple courts. Both of these actions were understood as bringing judgment on Israel or in particular upon the the religious leaders and authorities who were even at that time in the process of rejecting him and putting him to death. And then at the end of that section, a day later, when the disciples discovered that the fig tree that Jesus had cursed had withered and died, they were amazed. Verse 20. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. I half expect Jesus to go, duh. (laughs) And then Jesus gave one of these teachings on prayer that I mentioned earlier. We've often used this teaching and others like it to tell ourselves, to tell others, if we just have faith, if we just believe enough, we can ask for whatever we want and we'll get it. Before I read it, let me just set the stage a bit. Jesus and Mark have already drawn pretty heavily, at least in terms of what what is being said, from the prophet Zechariah. And a bit later, in that same book, there is another prophetic word about the day of the Lord when God would come as king, when the nations would come against Jerusalem. And there the prophet says, On that day, the Lord's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north, half of the mountain moving south. Zechariah 14.4 Again, I want you to remember where all of Mark 11 is taking place. In the first verse, we were told that the disciples and Jesus were approaching the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives. Just south and east of them is the Sea of Galilee. So we already have a few clues as to how we're going to interpret what comes next. Again, after Peter has expressed his amazement at the withered fig tree, verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if if anyone says to this, this mountain... Go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart but believes that what they say will happen. It will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when we pull these verses out of context, particularly that last sentence or so, it sounds like Jesus is promising us that if if we pray for whatever it is we want and we believe that we will get it, we will get it, whatever it is. But in context, this mountain... Jesus refers to in verse 22, is the one everyone can see from where they're standing. It's the Mount of Olives. The fig tree was cursed on the way into the city. And when Jesus and the disciples came back the next day with the city of Jerusalem before them in the Mount of Olives adjacent to the city, they saw the withered fig tree. And Jesus may well have pointed to the Mount of Olives when he said, truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Here again, Jesus is making a statement. I am the one the prophet Zechariah spoke of. And one day, if you have faith, 
These things will happen. This mountain will be split in two and will move. The day of the Lord is at hand. The king they long for has come. And while he will not be the king they necessarily want or believe him to be, he will most certainly be the king that they and we most need. I'm sure that if I were to ask everyone here, many of us could tell stories of how God answered our prayers with exactly what we were praying for. And I want to be very clear. I am not saying that we should not make our wants known to God as well as our needs. On the contrary, our desires are important in our lives with God. They, te- they teach us something about ourselves. They teach us something about God. Beth and Dave Borum, our speakers this Wednesday at our community gathering, say this about desire. When we locate our deep, persistent, heart-oriented longings, we identify a place of God's deep presence and movement. As we vulnerably engage with God around our desires, we find solidarity and communion with Christ. Desire is a powerful spiritual energy that moves us toward God and the life where we were created to live. Desire is a powerful spiritual energy that moves us toward God and the life we were created to live. We should pay attention to our desires. Naming and understanding our desires is an important part of the spiritual journey. Plus, we always have not only the freedom to ask for what we want, but we are strongly encouraged to do so. Do not be anxious about anything, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We make our requests known to God. Because sometimes, at least, what we want and what we need are actually the same thing. Sometimes what we want and what we need are actually the same thing. So we make our requests known to God. And then at other times, making our requests known to God brings us peace even if we don't get exactly what we wanted. So I'm sure that again, with many of us, perhaps even some of the same people who could identify where they got exact answers to to their prayers, many of us would say that we have prayed for something we desperately wanted but did not receive. And then if we probed a bit deeper, we might discover that even though we did not get exactly what we wanted, God met us in another way and gave us something we needed instead. Something perhaps that enabled us to better deal with not getting what we wanted. For Jesus, our King, does not always give us what we want, but He is always at work giving us what we need. Earlier I told you the story of my uh, attempts to bargain with God, to get what I wanted from God in some way, and I ask God either to make my children well-behaved and well-adjusted and prosperous or make my church well-behaved and well-adjusted and prosperous. Either one, you pick. Now the truth of the matter is this. The truth of the matter is that both of those areas continue to struggle from time to time. And the truth of the matter is both of those areas also flourished from time to time. In a very real sense, Kim and I did not get exactly what we wanted, but we have always received what we most needed. Through the challenges in life, whether in serving a local congregation or in trying to raise teenagers, we have grown. Our faith has grown. Our relationship with God has grown. Our intimacy with God has grown. Our understanding of God has grown. Our ability to weather the storms of life and ministry has grown. 
God is always at work in the world and in our lives, and whatever it is we care about, whatever it is we care about, we have learned that God cares about that even more. The same is true for you. Whatever it is you care about, whatever it is you're worried about, anxious about, fearful about, whatever that is, God cares about that thing, that person, that relationship, that situation, more than you do. And God wants to give you what you most need in trying times. He wants to help you grow and to become more and more the person He intends you to be. So let's take time this, this morning, this day, this week to consider the things we prayed for in the past or perhaps things that you're praying for right now and ask God where He has met us or is meeting us in the midst of our worry and our concern and our sorrow and our fear even though we're not getting what we asked. Where are those places? Take time in prayer this week to reflect on how God has met you in the hard places even when he didn't manage to make the hard things go away or get better. Because that's life. Identify what God has done for you rather than what you feel God has not done for you. And give thanks for those things. And where you're having difficulty seeing God at work in your life, where God has met you, ask him to open your eyes. Ask him to show you this day, this week, where he has been a blessing to you, where he has done something for you that is good, even in the midst of the hardship. The people of Israel wanted a Messiah who would take the city of Jerusalem by storm, kick out all the bad guys, and create a holy, powerful Jewish utopia. But that was not in God's plan. God is more subversive than that, perhaps more subtle than that. His mercy is much wider than that. And so instead... Through the people of Israel, God brought forth a suffering Messiah. One who does pretty much the opposite of what everybody was expecting. One who will give his life as a ransom for many. One through whom our sin will be dealt with once and for all, which is, after all, what we most need. You know, and while it can certainly be very inspiring to talk to people and to hear stories of how they prayed for things and got exactly what they wanted, it can also be very inspiring to talk to people who've gone through difficult times and seen God at work in and through their lives and difficulties even when things didn't go as they most desired and prayed. For that is the truest testimony to the power of God in a fallen and imperfect world. In Christ, we emerge victorious anyway. In Christ, even our sorrows can be shot through with joy. And in Christ... Even the darkness we may be going through is as light to God. So in closing, just before we celebrate communion together, I want to invite you to just sit quietly, close your eyes if you want to, and just listen, hear just a few brief passages from Scripture. They're also included, a list of them is also included in the Bible app live event. But listen to these Scriptures that speak to the presence of Jesus with what we need most of all, even if it isn't always exactly what we wanted, what we were hoping for. Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, 
your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Second Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. 2 Corinthians 12. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And Jesus says to us in John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Each month as we take communion together, we are reminded, we relive Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, the giving of his body and blood on the